Well, good morning again. We now turn to the living and abiding Word of God. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 13? Matthew 13. We've been in Matthew 13 for a couple of weeks now. This is the chapter where Jesus begins teaching in parables. This isn't the last time that we're going to see him teach in parables in this gospel, but it is the most concentrated section of it. And all of these parables tell us something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what Jesus has been focusing on in this chapter. The first week we saw the parable of the sower that showed us that not everyone who hears the word of the gospel will actually receive it. And so Jesus encouraged us to pay attention to how we are hearing and receiving God's word. Then last week, we saw three parables about the growth of the kingdom. The first parable showed us that as God's kingdom grows, evil grows alongside the good. And then the other two showed us that the kingdom of God starts off small and grows slowly, but it will eventually cover the entire earth. Those all encouraged us to both patience and confidence in the growth of God's kingdom. This week we're going to end with three more parables, and our focus this week is going to be on the value of the kingdom, the value of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus' parables play on the fact that the kingdom of heaven looks different from different perspectives. It looks different at the beginning of its growth than it does at the end. It looks different from God's all-knowing perspective than it does from our limited perspective. And the kingdom looks different to those inside the kingdom than it does to those outside of the kingdom. This last perspective is the one that we will focus on this week. Because for those who do not have ears to hear, the word of the gospel sounds like foolishness and is even offensive. But to those who do hear, who truly receive the word With joy, the gospel and the kingdom of God are more valuable than anything else in this world. So valuable, in fact, that it is worth giving up your whole life in order to gain it. That's what we're going to see today. But before we hear from God's word, let's ask for his help. Would you all go in prayer with me? Almighty and most merciful God, We humbly submit ourselves to you and we fall down before your majesty. We ask you that this seed, this word of your gospel now being sown among us may take such deep root in our hearts and lives that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it out. But we pray as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth the fruit of a changed life. Thirty 60, even a hundredfold. Do this in us by the power of your Spirit and to the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant 
in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at these parables today, we're going to especially focus on the first two. And we're going to see in them the supreme value of the kingdom and the good trade for the kingdom. And then as we look at the rest of the passage, we're going to see the delayed triumph of the kingdom. Both of the first two short parables open with the theme of something that is supremely valuable, but is also hidden from sight or hard to find. The first is a treasure that is hidden in a field, and the second is a tiny, valuable, but rare pearl. Both of these have overlap with the final two parables from last week, the tiny mustard seed and the leaven that is hidden in the mound of flour. Jesus is again telling us that the kingdom of heaven starts out small and insignificant, even hidden from sight. As much as the treasure hidden in a field sounds like some made-up adventure story to us, this would have actually been relatively common in ancient Israel. In that time and place, banks didn't exist, and there was always the possibility of thieves coming to steal invading nations, taking your goods, or even local officials confiscating your wealth. So it wasn't uncommon for someone to find a good hiding place on their property and bury their valuables. If they died without telling someone where it was, then the treasure could exist on the land for generations without anyone knowing. That's the scene that Jesus paints in this parable. An unknown treasure hidden from sight, buried in a field. The other parable pictures a merchant or a salesman who's on the search for a rare pearl. This also wouldn't have been uncommon in the ancient Mediterranean world. Pearls at this time were not just beautiful, but also an easy way to display your wealth to everyone around you. 
Since this man is a merchant, he knows the value of a rare pearl, and so he goes on a search for it. But it is the response of the person who finds it that is the point of these parables, not the hiddenness of the objects. It is their assessment of the thing that they have found. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure and one pearl of great value. That first picture is generic, but the second picture sounds like this isn't just one among many pearls, but this is the one pearl, the one with the supreme value in the world. And that is exactly what Jesus has been telling us about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything else in the world or in your life. Now, we talked a bit about a definition for the kingdom of heaven last week, but here we need to see that the thing that is so valuable is everything that is included in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom includes the fact that Jesus, the king, forgives all of your sins. It includes the fact that Jesus renews your heart and your life and causes you to walk and live as you were always meant to live. He teaches you how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. But he also gives us the ability to live in that way by giving us his Holy Spirit. It includes the fact that Jesus restores our broken relationship with God so that now we have fellowship, we have communion with the triune God. Even though we are sinners, we have the love and care and friendship of God. The kingdom includes the fact that he has given us the family of the church, which are fellow citizens in the kingdom. Everyone who comes to Jesus is a part of this new family. All of that together makes the supreme value of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And when you think about it, this is what Jesus has been saying from the very beginning of the gospel. He is constantly telling us that his kingdom is what we were made for. It is the most important, the most valuable thing in the whole universe. We see this in the birth announcement in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus coming into the world. The angel tells us what he will bring. He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus told us in the Beatitudes that those who are citizens of his kingdom are blessed They are the happy ones. They are those who have found the good life here and now, and then will experience the good life in full in the age to come. He said in Matthew 6 that the Pharisees seek temporary, cheap rewards from people who see and praise their good works. But our Father in heaven will give us the much better and lasting reward when we follow him in secret as well as in public. Jesus' words in John 10.10 sum up the comparison well. He says, The thief, that is Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Every one of us is tempted to think that other things, the things of this world, are more satisfying or more valuable than Jesus. We are tempted to think that money, or comfort and leisure, or success, or sex, or the absence of conflict, or a perfect family, 
We are tempted to think that all of those things are what is most valuable. We spend our lives chasing these things and searching for them. And Jesus tells us that the thing that we have been searching for, the only thing that will really satisfy you, is the kingdom that he came to bring. Forgiveness of your guilt, renewal of your heart, and relationship with God and his people. That kingdom is more valuable and more satisfying than everything that this world has to offer. And in both these parables, the story does not end with the assessment of value of the thing that the character finds. No, the story ends with the trade that these men make based on that value. In verse 44, the man finds the treasure in the field and covers it back up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In verse 46, the merchant, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The characters make an assessment of the worth of what they have found. And then they make a trade based on that worth. What do each of these men trade? Everything. Everything they had. Not some of their stuff not their extra spending money, not the margins of their life. No, they sold all that they had and bought the treasure and the pearl. Notice the added detail in verse 44. This man went in his joy and sold all that he had. He isn't uncertain or trying to figure out if this is worth it. His attitude shows that he knows he is getting a steal. This treasure is completely worth everything he has. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. They gave up everything they had to gain Jesus. Jesus will draw on this same principle again and again in specific situations. We've already seen what he will say to the disciples in Matthew 16. Remember, Jesus had just told them that he is going to suffer and die. And in their shock, he tells them that that is their call as well. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That last line is so poetic that we can miss what Jesus is actually saying. He says that if you try to save your life, if you try to hold it back, to cling to your life, then you are going to lose it. But whoever gives up his life, whoever lets go of everything that he or she has for the sake of Jesus, they will gain true life. If you hold back parts of your life from Jesus, then you reveal that you value him less than he is worth. He isn't worth part of your life. He is worth your whole life. It's only in giving up every part of your life to him that you will truly gain life. Giving up your marriage, your money, your job, your kids, your education, your hobbies, your house. Jesus will not accept partial discipleship. 
To be clear, he isn't saying that you give these things up as payment. That's where the analogy of the parables breaks down. Remember, the promise of the gospel is gift, free grace. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You don't pay for God's grace. But in response to his free grace, you also don't withhold anything from him as your Savior and your master. Another time that Jesus brings this idea up is in Luke chapter 18 when he meets a rich young ruler. The man asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life and then boasts that he has obeyed all of the commandments. So Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. Then we read his response. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus is not suggesting that this man can somehow earn his way to salvation. Jesus came to save weak and helpless sinners like us. But rather, what he is saying is that a true disciple is one who is willing to give up everything To follow him. This young man held back his money from Jesus. He would give him everything else except that one thing. Think about your own life. Is there anything you are not willing to give up to Jesus? Your sexuality. It's a big one in our culture right now. So many think of sex as our identity or as the most valuable thing in life but it pales in comparison to the gospel. Are you holding back your sexuality from the authority of Jesus? Maybe you're unwilling to give up your freedom to do what you want. When you hear something in God's law that you don't like, that infringes upon what you want to do, are you unwilling to give that up? Maybe you're holding back your money, like the rich young man, or you want to hang on to your comfort. Or your job is that area of your life that God can't touch? Do you cling to your family and value them above the kingdom? Notice, for most of these things, giving them up doesn't mean not having them anymore. God doesn't command you to leave your husband and your kids when you become a Christian. Or not to have sex with your spouse if you are married. Very rarely is Christian obedience a command to get rid of all of your money or to quit your job or to stop doing things you enjoy. But giving those things up to Jesus means that none of them is outside of his authority. You don't keep any of them on your own terms anymore, but only on his terms. You say what we say in the hymn that we so often sing. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Take my hands, my feet, my silver and my gold, my intellect. Take myself and I will be ever only all for Thee. And I know that that can be daunting 
or even disheartening to think of the ways that we have fallen short in our own discipleship. But for those of you who have come to Jesus and trust in him, think also of what he has done in your heart and your life. Though you don't do it perfectly all the time, you have indeed given these things up to Jesus. Some of you in here are in high school and college and know that all of your friends believe that true fulfillment is found in academic success at all costs or in sexual experience or in popularity. But you have said no. There is something more valuable than that. And his name is Jesus. Some of you are well into adulthood and are still single. You've had to say no to what many around you tell you is the purpose of life, whether it be sex or a soulmate or a family. But you have traded getting those things in ungodly ways for something that is more valuable. How many of you would have extra vacations or nicer cars or a second house if you weren't tithing to this church or giving money to those who are in need? but you have found something more valuable than money and leisure and stuff. The persecuted church across time and across the world even now says that comfort and even physical life itself is not more valuable than the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is better than comfort and security and health. He is good enough even to lose your life for him. If you are a Christian... You have traded your life. Things that may be valuable or pleasurable or even good, but you have traded them with joy for something that is infinitely more valuable and more lasting and more joy-inducing. You have traded them for Jesus, and you have found abundant life in him. Those of you who have held on like the rich young ruler. You have gone away sad when Jesus called you to give up that one thing for the kingdom. Has it been worth it? Have you found popularity or sex more gratifying than Jesus? Have you found vacations or money or comfort more gratifying than Jesus? If not, then give it up. Trade it In the goal isn't just that you beat yourself up for choosing the wrong thing in the past. The goal is that you repent of your bad choices, that you find forgiveness in Jesus, and that you lay those things aside and grab hold of that which is truly good. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lay aside your burdens and come to Jesus. It's also under the heading of what you trade for the kingdom that I believe verses 51 and 52 come into play. Look with me there. Jesus finishes his parables and he asks the disciples a question. He says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. There can be some confusion about what Jesus is saying here. Who are the, stri- are the scribes trained for the kingdom? 
So far in Matthew, the scribes have always been the bad guys. Well, scribes were those who were trained in understanding and interpreting the Old Testament. And the scribes that Jesus keeps encountering are bad because they think they know the Old Testament, but they don't realize that it points to Jesus. But instead of doing away with scribes completely, Jesus intends to create new scribes, trained for his kingdom. Remember, these parables were meant to teach his disciples the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus here is talking about the disciples. He is talking about those who now understand, even if not fully yet, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus says, if you are my disciple, you are now like the master of a house who draws both new and old things from his treasure and gives it to others. And this shows us something extremely important about the treasure and the pearl. So often we are tempted to hoard our treasure. We're tempted to keep it because it diminishes and shrinks when we give it to other people. But Jesus wants us to see that the treasure of the kingdom of heaven doesn't diminish when you give it away. This new treasure actually increases when you give it to others. Why? Because the kingdom grows. The more people you tell about this treasure, the greater the treasure becomes. More people make the trade of the gospel and come to know Jesus, and the people of God grow in number. This is a part of the trade of the gospel. Jesus commands those who have found the treasure and found the pearl to tell others about it. And it's an interesting note that he says that you will bring out what is old and what is new, especially as he condemns these scribes who reject him. I think this is the recognition that true disciples will bring out the truth of the Old Testament with the new revelation that all of it was pointing to Jesus. He is the long-awaited Messiah and the answer to all God's promises. This is exactly what we see the apostles doing then in the New Testament. They are showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had promised to his people in the past. This is what you are called to do as a Christian. This is not just for the professionals. You are a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven. You are an evangelist, someone who is called, as Peter says, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And so Jesus tells you to tell others about the kingdom of great value that you have found. Tell others who, who are seeking things that you have found the one pearl above all others. Tell others who are seeking fulfillment in empty things that you have found life that can be theirs too. This is what Jesus' new scribes are called to do. And while that is the point of these parables, the supreme value of the kingdom and the good trade that we make when we give everything up for the kingdom, that isn't the end of the story. Jesus tells another parable in verses 47 to 50 about fish that are gathered into a net. The parable is very similar to the parable of the weeds that we heard about last week. Both focus on the fact that good and evil are mixed together in the kingdom right now. 
But at the end of the age, God will separate the two into eternal life and eternal punishment. And I believe Jesus places this parable right here to remind us that the joy and value of the kingdom are still mixed with difficulty in this life. The supreme good is still mixed with evil for the time being. The value and the joy of the kingdom are not just future. They're given to us by faith right away. Jesus gives us forgiveness and joy and peace and fellowship with God right now. But the fullness of all those things does not come right now. Instead, we have to wait until the end of the age for that. That's the time when we will see clearly how much better the kingdom is than everything else. But until then, the joy will be mixed with suffering. And that's exactly what we see at the end of this chapter. Jesus finishes the parables and heads back to his hometown, to Nazareth. Look at how he is received there in verses 53 to 58. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Immediately after Jesus tells these parables of the kingdom to the crowds and explains them to his disciples, we get an illustration of many of the things that we have just seen in the parables. Jesus came back to his hometown and taught them the word of God in the synagogue. Their astonishment at his teaching is not the happy astonishment of receiving the word or even the neutral astonishment of his authority that we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. No, instead, it is the offended astonishment of someone rejecting the word of God. These people hear the mysteries of the kingdom explained, and they do not have ears to hear. They have Jesus, the treasure hidden in the field, right in front of them. And they can't see past how ordinary and insignificant he seems. They focus on the fact that they know where Jesus has come from. They know his family. And their thought is that something so familiar and so ordinary couldn't possibly be the most valuable thing in the universe. Someone who we saw grow up couldn't possibly be the Messiah and the Son of God. They are offended at the word of the gospel. We've seen this kind of rejection of Jesus already, and we will keep seeing it all the way to the cross. Those who are outside the kingdom don't look at it and just shrug it off because it's insignificant and foolish. No, eventually they will be angry and want to destroy the kingdom. This is a reminder for us that when we trade for the kingdom, when we give up all we have for the treasure of Jesus, we don't just let things go. We also take something on. Like Jesus, we agree to take on a cross. A cross of suffering and shame 
and offense. But for us, that cross is not ultimately a cross of shame. Instead, it will be a cross of glory. We mentioned at the beginning of the service that today is All Saints Day. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They sit at the end of the Christian life, no longer having their joy mixed with suffering, but in the glory and the presence of the Lord. And their job is not to hear our prayers or to pray for us or to do miracles for us. No, their job is to be witnesses to the value and the worth of the kingdom, especially in the midst of our suffering. These saints in glory, these witnesses, are telling us with their lives and with their sacrifices, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. The cross is worth it. It's worth all of your life, everything you have. Don't hold anything back because Jesus is worth it. And this is the vantage point we must see all of life from. Jesus has been encouraging us in these parables not just to hear with earthly ears and see with earthly eyes, but rather we are to hear the truth and the hope of the gospel. We are to see with the eyes of faith. Because the cross was not the end for Jesus. Death and suffering could not hold him. Instead, he rose from the grave and lives now in glory. And that too will be the outcome for us and for all the saints. Death will not have the final word but life. Not suffering but joy. Not shame but glory. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have taught us in your word, that you have shown us the value of your kingdom, that you have shown us that Jesus has come to bring joy and life. Father, we pray that our eyes would not be clouded with suffering and with the cares of the world so as to not see the glory of Jesus. We pray that we would work to fix our eyes upon him and that your Holy Spirit would empower us to run our race with endurance. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.